Shalom again, this is Reverend John Ferret, and welcome to part two of Lesson 38. And we are going to continue in Exodus 13, and I'd like to read Exodus 13, verses 10, actually verses 9 through 16. So Exodus 13, verses 9 through 16, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, and the Torah is talking about the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance and at its appointed time from year to year. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. And again, we remember we addressed this in part one of Lesson 38 when we talked about the fact that hmm, Jesus, man, as a human, is the firstborn son of Mary. He was redeemed redeemed according to the ritual that the rabbis invented in his day when he was when he was newborn but he is also the firstborn begotten son of god who is god and he is the lamb of god and all firstborn male lambs in israel had to be sacrificed and the lamb of god was truly sacrificed so back to 13, verse 13, But every firstborn offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sins, you sh uh, uh, son, your sons, shall, you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead, for with the powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So it, what is the it? And it seems as if the sacrifice of the firstborn. And it's very interesting. How do you wear that on your hand or on your forehead? The same thing with the bread. So indeed, we look at these verses, and the verse I want to focus in on is 13.9. It's going to serve as a sign to you on your hand, as a reminder on your forehead. And the it there in context is the unleavened bread. You go to verse 16. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand. Now this is interesting, and it says as phylacteries on your forehead. It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it just says that it's going to be a reminder. Serve as a sign on your hand, as a reminder on your forehead. Not phylactery. Phylactery is a Greek word. Or phylacteries is the English that comes from a Greek word that means amulet or charm. They weren't wearing charms or amulets at that time. So this is a terrible translation. It should actually be a sign on your hand that is a remembrance on your forehead. Now, 
You're also going to see this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. You're going to see this also in Deuteronomy 11, uh, verse 18. And some of you might remember the little boxes that Jewish men wear, and they're called tefillin. And like I said, that we read about the tefillin, and in the Greek, they're called phylacteries, amulets, uh, charms, but they're not amulets or charms. Matter of fact, tefillin, if we have to actually take a look at the etymology of the word, it's hard to say what tefillin means. It may mean to plead or to pray. So when we take a look at the use of phylacteries inside the New American Standard Bible, in verse 16 of chapter 13, it is a terrible error. I don't know why the translators did that. Because at this time, in the Exodus, 1446 B.C., they were not wearing the boxes. And on top of that, the tefillin, these little boxes, are not charms. They're not amulets. Now these tefillin, they're the two boxes. They each have straps on them. One is to wrap one of the boxes on the arm. Many religious Jews will wrap it on the left arm because it's closest to the heart. But there are others, other Jewish religious Jews, will wrap it on the strongest arm. So if they're right-handed, the right arm. Left-handed, the left arm. There's another strap on the other box where you wrap it on your forehead. Now, the rabbis clearly created these boxes. And they also created the ritual use for them in terms of the fact that they're used in morning prayers in the synagogue, except on Shabbat. They contain a parchment with the following verses on there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, you'll be familiar with it. It starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. Uh, the Hebrew word there that starts the sentence is Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, and Shema basically means hear, hear, O Israel. So the verses in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, then 11, 13 through 21, these are also in the boxes. This is part of the Shema. These are some of the main verses of the Shema. And they're recited two times a day, even in Jesus' day. So it's likely Jesus would recite the Shema with his disciples daily, twice. Also, the verses Exodus 13, 1 through 10, we study that in session 1, and then 11 through 16. So it seems like God didn't really mean to create Tefillin. Matter of fact, there is a debate among religious Jews, whether they should actually wear them or not. Because if you take a look at Exodus 13, verse 9, the it relates to unleavened bread. And in verse 16, the it seems to be related to a sacrifice. And then the question would be, realistically, how do you wear bread on your forehead? Or how do you wear bread on your hand? Or a sacrifice? But the great rabbi, Nechama Leibowitz, and she was a great, great Torah teacher, 
in the early 20th, 20th century. And I have to, again, credit Dennis Prager for so much in giving me, again, that Jewish background and also introducing me to Nechama Leibowitz. But Rabbi Leibowitz, she gives a solid rationale for the use of tefillin because it's really not ordered or commanded in the Bible. So Rabbi Leibowitz, she surmised that the tefillin are to remember the great event, the Exodus. And they're called a sign or a remembrance to remember something. Obviously, God said these are to remember the great things that God did in these days. She asked then, <clears throat> how do you remember without a tool? I mean, if you haven't got a tool and you're supposed to remember, it's like you're hoping your thoughts come back so that the thoughts would trigger the fact that you're supposed to remember something, some other thoughts. She surmised that you need something tangible for it to jog our minds so as to remember what God wants, what God wants us to remember. If there's no tool, if there's no physical thing that you have, it's easy to forget. And thinking about it, I'm saying, yeah, that makes sense. It's like wearing a watch. If you don't have a watch, you can't tell the time. But with the tool of the watch, if I look at it, I can get a pretty good idea of what time it is during the day. So Rabbi Leibowitz concluded, it only makes sense that tefillin are a great tool to obey the Lord. Now, for me, I say, okay, God did not order it. It's not, to me, God did not say create tefillin. Did not say create phylacteries. But this, it's a neat practice. I think it's a really neat practice and it's a neat tool. And, and it brings a Jewish man right back to the, 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 key, the keystone event in all of Judaism. And bring him back to God's word to remember it each and every day. But it's interesting because this relates to Jesus. Now the Tefillin were found in the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Found in the area of Qumran. Qumran was the site of a community. Some people say they're the Essenes. And this group is the group that actually wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and hid them in caves around Qumran. And Qumran is that archaeological site on the northeast shores of the Dead Sea. And you can Google the phrase ancient tefillin found at Qumran. Ancient tefillin, T-E-F-I-L-L-I-N, T-E-F-I-L-L-I-N. found at Qumran, and just click on images, and you will see the images of what they found. And these are dated to Jesus' day. And the implication is that Jesus wore tefillin, probably in the rituals that was established in his day. He's never criticized for not using tefillin. 
He's never criticized ever for not doing the Shema. Those set of Bible verses that are recited by Jews twice a day, he's never criticized. He's also never criticized about not wearing the tzitziot or the tassels, the four tassels on the four corners of his garment. He did wear them only for the simple reason when we correctly look at the story of the woman who had the bleeding disease for 12 years, she touched the tassel, the corner of his garment, the tassel on the corner of his garment. So, But this all makes sense. Jesus is a Jewish sage. He's a rabbi. He taught in all of their synagogues. You can take a look at this in Matthew chapter 4. And he probably attended synagogue services regularly. If Jesus didn't use tefillin, or have the four tassels on the corners of his garment. You think we really would hear about this in the Bible. But there's no criticism. But Jesus uses some strong words related both to the tefillin and the tzitziot. Now before I get into this, the thing that I want to bring up is this. I had mentioned Dennis Praker, who is a religious Jewish man, a Torah scholar, a Hebrew scholar, a man who approaches the Bible in a rational way, a realistic way. I was deeply um, concerned when he said Jesus attacked the use of tefillin and attacked the use of the tassels. And he went on to say, that that's Christians for you because Christians and Jesus did tried to do away with the Torah. Now, there's only one place in the entire Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus is using strong words related to the use of the tefillin and the tassels, the tzitziot. I'm in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this carefully. And I want to ask you the question. Is Jesus saying to stop using tefillin or stop wearing the tassels? Is he coming against their use or is he doing something else? Let's listen. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. In other words, they make their tefillin bigger. Phylacteries shouldn't even be the word used there. Again, phylacteries is the Greek word that means amulet or charms. These are not charms. These are more like boxes that are used for prayer to remember the great event of Exodus. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So when we take a look at this Jesus is saying 
These guys are taking their tefillin and making them bigger, noticeable, and their tassels, making them longer, maybe even using thicker twine to be noticed by men. Jesus, as a sage, as a rabbi, as a religious Jew, is not attacking their use, never. And so for me, I wish Dennis Prager would come back and he would actually study these verses, Matthew 23 verses 1 through 7. Matter of fact, Jesus does this earlier. I'm going to go to Matthew 6 verses 1 through 6. And this is right before the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus is going to be talking about praying. Now listen to this. Matthew 6 verses 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I tell you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. The actual Hebrew is chadar, which could be an outhouse, and also could be the bridal chamber. And close the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's doing the same thing. Don't show off. Don't seek the favor of the crowd. Pray in secret in a place no one can see you. Pray alone. So I wish Dennis Prager would take a look at this because Jesus, as a sage, as a religious Jewish rabbi of his day, is not attacking the use of tefillin or the tzitziot. And he probably wore them. We know he wore the tassels, quite definitely. Obviously because in that situation where the woman with a bleeding disease for 12 years touched, and when you actually study the Greek and take it back to the Hebrew, it's actually she touched the tassel on the corner of his garment. Another two verses that I want you to notice as we are in Exodus 13 are the following. We're going to take a look at verse 8 and verse 14. Verse 8 in Exodus 13 says, You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then when we go to verse 14, we read, And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you say, shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. This is interesting because all of a sudden we're bringing the kids into this. Now there's some other verses as well. If you go to Exodus 12 verses 26 through 27 we also read, And when your children say to you, What does this right mean to you? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of of the sons of Israel and Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. Then, also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, 
We have, when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? And then it says, then you shall say to your son. Now, if you have ever attended a Jewish Seder, a Jewish Seder has a very interesting uh, piece of it that's based upon long tradition. I don't know in my research, but I think it was done, I think the four questions were perhaps something that Jesus would have done when he actually had his Passover meal uh, for for every year of his life. I'm thinking that. Now, there are four questions, and four questions are supposed to be asked by uh, four children. And each one of these is a son. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to go to the Orthodox Jewish rabbinic commentary, the Chumash, and they're the best. They have the best description of the four sons. The four sons as related to the four questions. And these are related just to the verses that I just gave you. So we'll come back to them now. So first of all, in the Chumash, we're looking at Exodus 12, 26 through 27. And it shall be that when your children say to you, what is this service to you? To you, you shall say, it is a Pesach feast offering to Hashem, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he saved our household. So that's Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. Hashem is a Hebrew word meaning the name. And again, since I'm reading an Orthodox, well, a Jewish religious book, they will not say or even print yud heh vav Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. They'll use another word like Adonai, Lord, or Hashem. Now the commentary here by the rabbis is, this is the question of the wicked son who removes himself from the community and does not wish to join in the service. His wickedness is indicated by his refusal to mention that the service he questions has been ordained by God or because he says to you, implying that his question is rhetorical. He does not want an answer. He is sarcastic and is stating by implication that God's commandments are not binding or beneficial. So this is the question of the wicked son. And again, like I said, if you attended a Jewish Seder, you would experience this. You would experience the four questions of the four sons. Now let's go to Exodus 13, verse 8. And again, reading in the uh, Chumash, the Orthodox Jewish Commentary. And so in the verse we read, And you shall tell your son on that day, saying it is because of this that Hashem, there's that Hashem again, which would mean Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, yud heh acted on my behalf when I left Egypt. And it shall be a sign for you on your arm, etc., etc. Now here, the child doesn't ask. So the rabbis say this is about a child who does not realize that there is much to ask about. So it's a son who doesn't even know how to ask. In such a case, it is the responsibility of his parents to initiate the discussion and lead him into the world of understanding 
of his historic calling and the privilege of his obligation to carry on the memory of the nation creating Exodus. So this is the son who could not ask. So let's go to Exodus 13, verse 14. And we read, And it shall be when your son will ask you at some future time, What is this? You shall say to him with a strong hand, Hashem, remove this from Egypt from the house of bondage. So this is the simple son's question. He's just asking something simple. What is all this? So if children want to know the reason for the sanctification and redemption, their parents should tell them about the Exodus, which was the origin of the commandment of the firstborn. And it's very interesting because they said this is the simple son, so give them a simple answer. Straightforward, don't get complicated. Finally, we get to Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, and they say this is the wise son. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, if your child asks you tomorrow, saying, what are the testimonies and the decrees and the ordinances that Hashem, our God, commanded you? So this is interesting because they say this is the wise son, and by saying you, the son does not mean to exclude himself from the obligation to perform the commandments. Rather, he's addressing the people who had participated in the Exodus. Or he means to direct his question to Jews in general, asking about the commandments that God gave Jews over and above the universal Noahide laws. So again, he's saying, what are the testimonies and decrees and the ordinances that Hashem, our God, commanded you? Our God. And so the wise son is including himself. Now, Dennis Prager comments on all of this in his book, Exodus, the Rational Bible. And his point is, Exodus is an event, <clears throat> in his view, that happens once, it'll never happen again. It will never be repeated. He said it's not about freedom, and it's not about saving Jews or saving Hebrews. He said it's all about the amazing new world that is about to be created. A new world? Because all of a sudden there's going to be a new nation, Israel, born and created out of the Exodus. A new nation that is going to bring monotheism, the belief in one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob to the entire world. This is their mission. Isaiah 42.6, that they're the light of the world to bring the salvation of God to the nations. 49.6, the same thing. Israel's called the light to the nations, the light of the world. Now Jesus verifies this as well. In John 4, verse 22, Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews. Now it's very fascinating because salvation in Hebrew is Jesus' name. Israel is to bring the Yeshua of Adonai to the ends of the earth. Just amazing. Exodus, Yeshua a major piece of God's predetermined plan. Now it's very fascinating, in Isaiah 49.6, Israel is the light of the world, is supposed to bring the Yeshua of God to the ends of the earth. And what does Jesus say to his disciples prior to his ascension to the Father? You will go in Jerusalem, 
to Judea, to Samaria, throughout Israel, and to the ends of the earth, and be a witness. In other words, a witness of what? Of Yeshua, of the salvation of the Lord. That verse, right before his ascension, is all related to all of this. It goes back to Abraham. He's the first Hebrew in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Remember, there's four promises. God promises that he would have people, many descendants. He promises a place, in other words, the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. That his name would be great in the earth. He has a position of greatness. And he has a purpose. Through Abraham's seed, his descendants all Jews and Gentiles will be blessed. That's in Genesis 12, verse 3. Now there's an equivalent, alternate and equivalent translation where we read, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's take a look at an alternative and equivalent way this verse can be translated. The great rabbis, Orthodox, great Hebrew scholars, in their art scroll, Tanakh series, Breshit, art scroll happens to be the publisher, it's the Tanakh series, and the Tanakh, if you recall, basically means the Hebrew scriptures, T for Torah, N for Nevi'im, and Chet for the writings, basically the entire Old Testament. So these are Jewish scholars, Hebrew scholars, and they have an opinion based upon the Hebrew that we read is, and all the peoples on the earth or all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Their opinion states that the verb, and this is how it's stated in the Hebrew in Genesis 12.3, veni vraku, and it means to be blessed. However, if it, it can, it's also related to the Mishnaic Hebrew term Mavrik, Mavrik, which also means to intermingle or to graft in. So what's interesting is in Genesis 12.3, nowhere else in the Torah, nowhere else is the Hebrew verb Barak appearing in this very unique form. It's unique only to that verse as it appears in these narratives. And so the same verbal root is commonly found in this form in regarding the grafting of plants. Therefore, the rabbis tell us that one equivalent and alternative way of saying this is all families of the earth of, on the earth will be grafted in. Grafted in. Now, I have to say, the Art Scroll Tanakh series Breshit has got nothing to do with Jesus. They're not, I mean, it's, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and so on. But here are Orthodox Jewish rabbis, Hebrew scholars themselves are saying, hey, wait a minute, we got an alternate way of saying the same thing. They're saying grafted in. Now, later on, what we find is Rabbi Elazar Shamua. He's in the second century AD as a student of Rabbi, the great Rabbi Akiva, and he used the phrase 
when he was commenting on Genesis 12.3 about the fact that there's going to be Ruth the Moabitess and Naamah the Ammonitess who will be grafted in. And he's referring to Genesis 12.3. Now he's about 50 years or so after Paul and we know Paul uses this phrase. So either Paul found the inspiration for his olive tree parable in the same equivalent translation in 12.3, or both Paul and Rabbi Elazar shared a common source. The, the imagery is, is just amazing. And the idea of being grafted in comes is a Jewish source. So we have this equivalent alternative. Now this is a big deal. We have a major step in the Lord's pre-designed redemption plan. And part of it is, we have to tell our kids, it's incumbent upon the parents, not the church. And what a perfect time to tell our children about the great redemption plan, to witness the gospel at the time of Passover. Yahweh is engineering history. He's engineering events so that his plan will succeed. He tells us he cannot be stopped. I just love this. It's in Isaiah 14, verses 24 and 27. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. And verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? God engineers historical events. Just imagine, in Jesus' day, when you actually read the actual accounts that we have, Roman accounts, that Pilate was instructed by Tiberius Caesar to take away certain powers of the Sanhedrin. And he did. He took away their right to administer capital punishment. Capital punishment under the Sanhedrin was basically stoning. And this is at a very short period of time during Pilate's reign. It was after Pilate's reign that they restored capital punishment back to the Sanhedrin. And so there was only one way at this time in history for capital punishment to be administered in Jerusalem, and that was Rome's way. This is in the Babylonian Talmud, by the way. The Jews report this. In the Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 15a, it says 40 years before the temple's destruction, the Sanhedrin could not administer capital punishment. That's 30 AD, by the way. The only way is crucifixion. This amazing sliver of time only orchestrated by God. God enters history. Exodus happens once and only once. 1446 BC. And through archaeology and because of the fact that we're dealing with some very unique characteristics of this time, we see God's engineering. Pharaoh, Amenhotep II, was not the firstborn, so he wouldn't die in the last tenth plague. That happened. 
Fascinating love. In, early, in earlier lessons, we talked about they worshipped Kansu, who was the moon god. The only begotten son of Amun-Ra, the father of the gods. And the firstborn were killed by the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Israel, the only God, the true God, the mighty God. And he did it on the night of the full moon in Egypt. The full moon, Kansu in all his glory. It's almost as if the firstborn, only begotten son of Amun-Ra was killed as well. Precise time in history. Matter of fact, the Jewish calendar changes. Because God said, back in Exodus 12, that this month, meaning the month of Passover, will be the first month of the year for you. Every year from now on. You come to Nisan 1. You come to the celebration of the new moon. And you're at such a pivotal point. And it's all based upon the Exodus. And Jesus, again, God enters history. He can only be crucified. It's only a small window of time where this can happen. There were 50,000 miles of Roman roads across the world. It was the Pax Romana. There was world peace. There was one universal language, Greek. Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time. The fullness of time Jesus was sent. What a time for the word of God to be spread throughout the world. And the fullness of time, the Greek word is pleroma. The Strong's number is 4138, G4138. And it means filling up, like filling up a jar. So the jar of time is full at that point. It's the fullness of time. God's plan, when this jar, this specific one is full, this is the time he is going to come. And just like the Exodus, Jesus is coming and his death, his crucifixion, is a once-in-a-lifetime event, like Exodus. And just as the Jewish calendar changed, so did the entire calendar of the entire world. We now have two periods, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Annas Domini, the year of the Lord. So as we took, take a look at not only this session, but in session one, what have we learned? The unleavened bread became a sign. Became a sign that the word of God is in our mouth. Jesus takes the bread. And he says this sign is also a sign of himself, the living word. The living word and the written word. They're suspended. They're lifted up. And the living word and the written word are crucified together as one. Jesus said it. We saw that in session one. It's not my opinion. And he said, the last words, that it is finished. And this is good news. This is amazingly good news. What a time to teach this to our sons and our daughters.
at the time of the Passover, a time to remembrance, the first redemption through Moses and the great redemption through Messiah. So I'll see you in Lesson 39. Shalom.